Hi, you're up front with Richard Niles, and tonight I am up front with two giants of 20th century music. All musicians have great talent, but tonight's dynamic duo were also two of the greatest thinkers in jazz. Both were prolific writers and were always searching for new intellectual territory to explore. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the voice of Mel Torme up front with the clarinet and orchestra of Artie Shaw. Mel Torme had grown up on Artie Shaw's music. He was a very big booster of Shaw. And I think that Artie Shaw had this kind of raw, intellectual, musical intelligence that really uh, appealed to Mel. I think that collaboration uh, was really um, well thought through. I think they both realized that they could offer one another something really quite wonderful in tandem with each other. Get out of town Before it's too late, my love Get out of town Artie Shaw's, of course, was always a very well-respected band leader, and Mel Tome, at that point, was making quite a name for himself as a vocal arranger and, and as a voice. Mel had grown up in the height of the swing era in Chicago, and he was very much a jazz fan, very much a big band fan. And Artie Shaw was always his favorite. That was always the band that he gravitated to. So it was a dream come true that when he was stepping out on his own as a vocalist, as a popular vocalist in the mid-1940s, that he had the opportunity to work with Shaw. Touch too much The thrill when we meet is so bittersweet The darling, it's getting me down so on your mark, get set, get out of time. Mel Torme's boyhood was not that of your typical kid. A bit of a child prodigy, Mel tells us how it all began. I'm from Chicago, Illinois originally. And my favorite toy as a child was the little table radio that we had. I listened to all the orchestras, particularly ones that broadcast from the varying cafes in Chicago. One particularly was an orchestra called the Kuhn slash Sanders Orchestra. Uh, two guys who had a wonderful name band playing at the Blackhawk restaurant. Okay, my mother and father took me there one night. I knew everything that they played and uh, they sort of pushed me out on the dance floor and I sang a number with the orchestra and that led to singing with them every Monday night for about six months. I was, I think, one of the two or three busiest child actors in radio from approximately 1933 to about 1940. My voice changed, I couldn't do the kid parts anymore. But during that period of time, I did almost every radio show imaginable which emanated out of Chicago. And Chicago was to radio what Hollywood was to the movies and Broadway was to the theater. And I did all the accents. I got all the, all the parts that called for dialects because I was musical and I, my ear picked the dialects up. 
Mel Torme's biographer is George Hume. Mel Torme was a child actor and appeared on radio in Chicago for many years. But of course, like all child actors, eventually his voice broke and so he was forced to look for other outlets for his talents. Fortunately, he had learned to play the piano, the guitar and the drums and so he looked for a career in music. He was recruited as the, what the Americans call, speciality drummer for the Chico Marx band in the early 40s. And that meant that he played the occasional number on drums, but most of his work was as the arranger for the band's vocal group. Later on, when the Americans entered the war, uh, the regular drummer for the band, George Wetling, was drafted and Mel Torme took over as the regular drummer in that group. The Chico Marx band came to an end uh, when Chico decided that he was fed up with touring and, and being a band leader and Torme started to look for something else and coincidentally his manager uh, introduced him to a vocal group who called themselves the school kids because they were in fact still at school. They were looking for somebody who was a lead voice and would also write their arrangements for them. After a very short while the, the group changed its name to the Mel Tones. One of those school kids turned Meltones was Ginny O'Connor, who married the great Henry to become Ginny Mancini. After I've taken the blame, you say The first time I met Mel Torme, I had been singing with a in a quartet, another gal and two guys and me. Mel had just come to California from Chicago having been discovered, really, by Ben Pollock, who was a big, big band leader in the 30s and from Chicago and recognized Mel's extremely brilliant talent and said to his parents that they just must get him out to Hollywood to um, have all of these wonderful talents exposed and see where that would lead him. and. Uh, so he said to Mel, I think you should hear these kids sing because it would give you an opportunity to show your talents in vocal arranging and, and creative stuff musically. And so he arranged us for us to meet at a place on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood called the Crossroads of the World and became certainly a metaphor for the crossroads that he was forced to take and that I was forced to take. And um, we were quite young. Um, I think Mel was 17 at the time. I might have been 18 or 19. And that was when we first met. Guilty of loving you. this particular period, Torme's voice was 
unusual in that it was very light. It had a slightly indistinct quality. Not that his diction was bad, it was just that it had a sort of misty sound. Lots of luck and joy and happiness. I believe those Oh, like it was coming through a foghorn, which is, I don't mean that it, it was terrible, it was wonderful, it was just so different. And of course, subsequently, he got the nickname the Velvet Fog. I think he resented it and tried to lose it throughout his career, but at the time, it, it was like you know listening to Velvet Through Fog or feeling velvet through fog, feeling and, and touching are, are so intertwined, you know? But that's what I believe Just arrived on the 710 Thought I'd see the old gang again But you know how they come and go I'm just a stranger in town Everywhere His intonation was always first class, his pitching was always first class, and he always was able to interpret the lyrics of a song very well indeed. This led him into problems with some composers who wanted songs to be sung with the word spacing and rhythm that they had envisaged. And Torme always liked to sing the words as they made sense, even if it meant breaking a line uh, at what in the song was the wrong point. And this led to a degree of trouble. Somehow I felt that you would wait here, my sweet But it looks like I'm too late Guess I'll leave on the 12.02 Can't believe that there's no more you Is there nothing for me? Will I always be a stranger in my own home? It hurts to be alone with no one of your own when you're a stranger in your own home. Another guy who was always getting in trouble for his artistic directions was the brilliant, rebellious Artie Shaw. He hated celebrity, and his innovative ideas and odd choices of music in a swing context would seem to have slowed him down. Yet his brilliant talent always found a wide audience. A fabulously virtuosic clarinetist, what kind of band leader was he?
those days, a good one that is, could be likened to a very good editor of a magazine. He can hire all kinds of writers and each of them is an astoundingly individual person. But when they put through the hopper, they come out and the magazine reads very much like Harold Ross was not a writer, but he was a hell of an editor. Most band leaders are that. Whatever contribution I may have made musically, it really came down to the fact that in the so-called swing era at that time, swing music was regarded by most people as noisy, blatant, full of drum riffs and trumpet riffs and so on. And what I did was to show that you could use this so-called swing idiom and apply it to music that was accepted, like Jerome Kern, Porter, Gershwin, even Sigmund Romberg and Victor Herbert. That was a rather strange notion at that time. Because Mel Torme was also an accomplished multi-instrumentalist and arranger, Shaw saw in him something of a musical soulmate, and together they embarked on a number of successful studio recordings. Mel Torme and the Meltones obtained a recording contract with the American Decca Company. That took them into 1944-45. There was a company that was relatively new, it was called Musicraft. It was run by a man called Albert Marx, no relation as far as I'm aware to the Marx brothers. And he had a label called Musicraft which had many very well-known artists, including Sarah Vaughan, Georgie Auld, Duke Ellington, and Artie Shaw. Mel Torme and the Meltones were recording their own material for the label. They had the use of band leaders like uh, Sonny Burke and Hal Mooney. I'm in a mist because I've been kissed by a lovely you. What can it be that suddenly came over me? One day, Artie Shaw was in need of a vocal group to widen the sort of material that he was recording, and Albert Marx asked Mel Torme if he and the Meltones would be interested in filling that role, and indeed they agreed to do so, and they went on to make many successful recordings. And that's why I Recordings with Artie Shaw and Mel Torme and the Meltones came about because of a new record label called Music Craft. And they were signing the people that they wanted on the label. And Artie Shaw was one, and Mel Torme and the Meltones was another. They had a, a lovely stable of uh, recording people. And um, 
It was wonderful to be in on the birth of a new record label and then to have recorded something that took off. It's It was great. To be backed by one of the great big bands of life and performing together was just a joyous, wonderful happening. Tell me why should it make a fool of me? I mean, that was an interesting group. Jazz pianist and broadcaster Marion McPartland. And I would could imagine why he would want somebody like Mel, because Mel was such a fine musician in his own right. And that's what Artie would like, would be somebody, I won't say as talented as himself, because he, <laughs> I couldn't say that about Artie. He thought he was the greatest talent of all. <laughs> Mel would have to be perfect, although I'm sure Artie probably did tailor the arrangements to suit Mel, but I'm sure, sure that of the two of them, he wanted things his way. Although Mel was a pretty feisty guy. Well, we had a great blend to start with, so, you know, Mel just was a perfect blend with the five of us. That was so, what was so much fun about our singing together, is that the sounds that we made made, made us all so happy and were, were so good that just to be a part of it was such a pleasure. We couldn't get enough of one another. We, would, we were really joined at the hip. We, we would rehearse and rehearse, and then we'd... We'd go to a movie, and on the way to the movie, we'd sing together. We'd we'd take trips to Las Vegas, and in the car, while we did was was sing together. It was such a was such a great pleasure, such a great joy, and of course that transcended to across to everybody who heard us and uh, wanted to, <laughs> wanted to hear you know what we did. It was the modern approach that Mel Torme was giving to that vocal group. They were ahead of any of the other contemporary groups who were singing close harmony, but Mel Torme was writing with a slightly modern bop-influenced sound. I think he was fascinated by the way that Artie Shaw was using his arrangers to produce music that had this very modern sort of flavour, not only because it had strings, which was itself unusual, but the voicing of the brass uh, and reeds together, uh, which sounded like no other orchestra at the time. gives me the Milky Way Express my thanks. I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. And with the sun in the morning and the moon in the evening, hey! Artie Shaw himself was interested in making his band sound that bit more modern. He was employing some more modern arrangers and was voicing 
with strings uh, as well as uh, more modern soloists and he saw that the Meltones would add that kind of dimension to his recordings. Gives me the Milky Way. It was very innovative at the time and that was what was so special is it was cutting edge there had been vocal harmonies and trios and then the Mary Max came along and and uh, the modern airs and then all of a sudden uh, the Skylarks um, five-part harmony was such a wonderful departure and uh, I always said I wanted on my tombstone to say that she lived in the middle of a hot chord I mean it was where I loved being um, was in the middle of that wonderful hot chord burning Ginny Mancini in the middle of a hot chord So the musical marriage of Mel Torme and Artie Shaw was great on paper. Both great innovators and great perfectionists with strong convictions about their own identities. But what about their personal relationship? Author of many great books on popular music, here's Will Friedwald. If you ever met either one of them, they were the two biggest egomaniacs you would ever want to encounter. They both were very, very fond of themselves. And I think that Mel was able to subjugate his ego to Artie just because he had such incredible respect for the man and because he'd been such a major influence on Mel growing up. But even he would talk about how it was held, you know, when you had a conversation with Artie, it was very, very difficult to get a word in edgewise, even for Mel. And Mel was very, very good at getting words in edgewise, I want to tell you. I know that he took a great liking to Mel, but knowing Artie, I would imagine that everything would have to be perfect. laugh because when I think about the two of them, I loved Mel Torme. Um, I, I love him. I never did lo- love Artie Shaw because, I don't know, he's become such a curmudgeon and, and I think he's, I think they both have demons they're going to have to come back and deal with. I really do. We found by finding each other the love we were. Demonic talent often results in demonic emotions, and like all good things, the partnership between Mel and Artie had to come to an end. Here's Mel's biographer, George Hume. The contract that Artie Shaw had came to an end, and therefore there was no opportunity for Mel Tomé and the Meltones to work with him any further. And that meant that what little opportunity remained for Mel to stay with the Meltones came to an end.
Mel had to leave the Meltones because of a career choice he was forced to make. He was being managed then by a wonderful manager by the name of Carlos Gastel. He said to Mel, look, you've got what it takes to get there, but I think you have to focus. What do you want to be? Who do you want to be? You can't be all things. I think he really wanted to be a movie star. He never quite got there, but he certainly became a star in so many other musical entities. And Mel had to make that choice. And it was, you know, we had outlived our, I don't want to say usefulness, but it was a wonderful three years that we were all together and it was over. I wasn't quite sure what I would be doing in life next, but it certainly opened the door for me to make a choice and find my star in progress, uh, which was Henry Mancini. So serendipitously, it worked out for, for everybody. Ginny and Henry Mancini ended up with stars in their eyes, but what became of Torme and Shaw? Despite Artie Shaw's hatred of the commercial aspects of the music business, the only way he could avoid having hits like Begin the Begin, Stardust, and Summit Ridge Drive was to stop recording, which he did in the mid-50s. He will always be remembered not only for his six marriages, including Lana Turner and Ava Gardner, but as a phenomenal musician with a challenging intellect. Mel Torme was always the hippest of the hip jazz singers. His career continued to rise as a performer, arranger, and writer of many successful books, including his autobiography and a biography of his fellow bandmate, Buddy Rich. His voice remained in top shape until a stroke in the mid-1990s. Foggy thanks to Ginny Mancini, Marion McPartland, George Hume, and Will Friedwald, and thanks to my Velvet producer, Elizabeth Clark. Get out your hankies, because next week is the final show in the series. Depressing though it is, we're going out in style, up front with the music of the divine Sarah Vaughan and the golden baritone of Mr. B, the great Billy Eckstein. Up front with Richard Niles. Up 